this is Jeffrey Madoff, and welcome to our podcast called Anything and Everything with my partner, Dan Sullivan. Hi, everybody. It's Dan Sullivan here, and this is another, I can't almost wait to get into it, sparkling discussion between Jeff Madoff and me on the topic of anything and everything. Jeff, you posed an interesting topic for today. And it was about how do you discover your passion? And once you discover your passion, how do you follow your passion? And how do you make the cash register ring (laughs) from your passion? Because if you're devoting your whole life to it, you do somewhere along the line want to get paid for it. I think it's a general question for people particularly, but I think in the environments that you and I operate in, in the area of creative careers, and you have a famous book out on that subject, it's something that I think occurs to people much earlier in life than it does to people and maybe are set on a conventional career where they're going to be properly educated and get a proper degree and then get a job with someplace where they have a certain amount of job security. And the whole point is to have the degree. The whole point is to have the reputation that you got hired into a particular job by a particular organization. But this is, I think, a completely different area. And I think it has to do with there's an internal capability that you have that preoccupies you. You know, you can't escape from it. You know, you can't forget about it. It only makes you unhappy if you ignore it. And how do you navigate life with this on your mind? Yeah, and I think it's also, aside from how do you navigate life with that on your mind, how do you scratch that itch? You know, how is it that you get the kind of fulfillment from what you're doing that you would hope to get if you follow your passion. But I also pose the question, how do you discover what your passion is? How do you even know? Why don't we both go autobiographical here and talk about it and how you've come to understand your passion from early and my passion really from early. I mean, I'm I'm pretty well on the path that I set out for myself when I was about 20 years old. When I can remember, looking back, there's a direct line from age 20 to where I am right now, where I've had a single thing sort of on my mind that I was willing to guess that this was it, and I was willing to bet the last 60 years on it. (laughs) What was that single thing? Well, I wanted to create an educational system where the subject matter was the individual's own experience, taking what's really subjective and making it objective in the world. You know, it's something you feel inside of yourself, and then you manifest it. You have to package it to a certain extent. You have to package what's going on inside your head in such a way that it attracts the attention of other people in such a way that they would pay you for it. So my case is that I got on very early that if you could ask people certain types of questions about their experiences and you could get them to say it and then you would give them insights that you have, you know, this is really important 
what you're talking about. And every time you talk about this, I notice you're a lot more excited about this subject than you are any other subject. So that would be one of my definitions of how you know what your passion is. It's the way that you talk about it, where there's a lot of emotion attached. And it's positive emotion. It's not negative emotion. It's very positive emotion. And that keeps coming back to you. Like, we all have to do other things in the world just to get a feel for what the world is. We have to get jobs. We have to experiment with this possibility. We have to experiment with that possibility. But you just keep coming back to this central thing. Well, I happen to know that one of your early passions was theater. Yep. Did you ever seriously think about trying to make a living at it? Or, and this becomes a bigger kind of cultural question, are those pursuits not so necessarily respected? You know, you always have to have a fallback position if it doesn't work. You know, nobody asks an accountant or a dentist or something if they have a fallback position. But mm -hmm. if you try to pursue something in the arts, well, what if it doesn't work out? What are you going to do? And that sort of thing. So with you, what happened to change your direction from that? Well, what I realized is I like performing. I like creating and I like performing what I've created. When I was growing up in a very small town in northern Ohio, this was the 1950s, I kind of said, you know, theater is really an interesting activity because you get to make up certain things. I mean, you're doing plays that other people have written, but you have a character and there's something you can do with that character. In other words, you can bring who you are to, you know, it's fairly limited. You, you've got lines and you're limited to the lines and, you know, you've got your part in a much bigger production. And to what degree can you pour yourself into this role in such a way that it's your role? You've actually done that. And I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed the activity of getting inside of a character. And then I had the good fortune when I was in the Army through a set of volunteering experiences that I did. The other thing I'll bring this in is that wherever you get a possibility to do something like this, whether you get paid for it or not, you volunteer to do it just for the experience of doing it. In other words, you don't have to pay me to do this, but the opportunity to do this, even volunteering to do this, actually plays a part in the growth of my understanding of what this is. It seemed to me that two aspects of this is that you pick any available activity that's going on that seems to resonate with where you're going. And theater, high school theater, really struck me. So wherever there was a play, I would be one of the volunteers among the student body who would just always be there. And I didn't really care that much what the role was. It was just a role that I could do something with. Okay, but I like that experience of being on stage. I like the experience of having an audience. I like the experience of the teamwork with the other members of the cast. But I was very interested in how the whole thing was put together. Like I, I wasn't just participating as a player, I was participating. I says, you know, this whole theater thing is a really interesting experience. And you only get there by volunteering. 
it's not a prescribed course. It's not something you do. And it's a lot of extra time after school that you have to do it. And it's for maybe three or four presentations, but you would work at it for three or four months to just have three or four presentations. And that just seemed to me kind of a a neat sort of thing that kind of was a created experience that really wasn't on the curriculum. And it involved other people who were kind of like-minded about this. I really liked that activity, but I also knew that the theater wasn't the center of what I was doing, is that I was going to create a something that was presented to the public and it had an audience and it would be a neat thing. It would be made up. You're using a play that's written and you're using characters that have been created by other people, but you're getting a chance to do something with it and bring your, in my case, bring my talent, bring my personality to it. And um, But at the same time, it was part of a fairly intricate teamwork. And I just like the whole thing of living your life in an activity that is created, living your life in an activity that is kind of created from scratch, that has a deadline to it. It's got opening night, and it's only going to happen within the framework of one week. Just a neat thing. So that's before you were 20. Yeah, this would be, I would say, 16, 17, 18 years old. And what do you think it was that ignited that passion in you about theater? Well, it was out of the ordinary. Mm Mm-hmm. It was out of the ordinary. You were using your time to do something that the vast majority of other people couldn't imagine themselves doing. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they say the two greatest fears that people have, number one is dying. The second one is doing something in public. <laughs> Living. <laughs> Those are the two things that, that strike people as the hardest things, the dying and living. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But how does that correspond to your own feeling about it? Because you're more into theater in your 70s than you were any previous period of time. I mean, you're having a full experience now in a way that you did other things that led up to, we're speaking about the Broadway musical in the making. I mean, the moment you talked about it, it just resonated with me when we were at lunch up in that lavishly wealthy part of the city that you that you live in New York. We were at lunch, and there was just something about the way that you described the whole creation of the play. And I said, what a absolutely neat thing that people just get together and just make something up that they're willing to throw themselves into at quite a bit of risk you know, reputation risk, but also financial risk. And you have to enroll a lot of other people in your idea. And I said, what a, what a neat way to go about life. Does that resonate? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the questions that I ask my guests in the class that I teach is, what did you like doing when you were a kid? Mm-hmm. So we grew up in the same era. My guess is you played cowboys or army or some of that stuff, which is basically 
yeah, improvisational acting, you know. Yeah, yeah. You flipped a coin which side you were on, you know. I mean, <laughs> I mean, for it to work, you had to have cowboys, but then you had to have the adversaries, you know. Yeah, and- or you just totally invented those adversaries and they were never physically there, <laughs> you know. But when you got shot, when you rolled down the hill, you know, I mean, all that kind of stuff. You know, when you were doing it, what was cool as a kid, and I don't know when this gets lost, you commit. I think it's fair to say on one hand, you commit to that nonsense as if it's real. That commitment is what makes a great actor. Yeah. You know, when they fully commit to what they're doing. So when I thought back that I love doing the movies, you know, I had a theater in my basement that I put together and I would draw the posters and then print them out and get post them around the neighborhood, do the sound mix for the films and all this stuff for my neighborhood theater, playing cowboys, which was acting, if you will. Mm-hmm. I was in some plays when I was young, when I was quite young. So that lit me up. It was fun. You know, mm-hmm. I liked it. And I was fortunate because my parents never discouraged mm-hmm. any activity that I did. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, when you're talking about what people fear, we just happened to watch a movie, Nyad, the other night about Diana Nyad, the swimmer, starring Annette Benning and Jodie Foster. Mm. I think you would like it because the message was, you know, she was going after this record at age 65, which everybody told her is impossible and you're never going to do it. I mean, I'm really simplifying the story, but it was really interesting mm-hmm. how fully she had to commit to that. And it was actually life and death because she was in danger in terms of just the elements, sharks, jellyfish, the weather, all that kind of thing. And it was really interesting because the only way that you do these things is fully commit. But yeah. somewhere, and I don't know if it's a part of our culture or if it's a part of general psychology or what, but somewhere, we're taught not to take that as seriously as becoming a lawyer, you know, or some other profession. It's interesting. I mean, you know, we're taking the play to England. England, the government subsidizes theater. So it's not as crazy expensive to produce on the West End, which is their equivalent of Broadway. And there's also tax incentives, yeah. you know, for investors. It's taken more seriously there than it is here, mm-hmm. theater itself. And so I, th- I think it's fair to say the two global destinations for theater are London and New York. Yeah. You the know, West End and Broadway. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. But I wonder what that is in our culture that the arts, unless you become very famous and wealthy as a result, that they aren't taken seriously. And so if you commit to those things, again, unless you get really successful, you know, it's almost like, well, I mean, what's your fallback position? You're not going to commit to that, are you? Yeah. But commitment, you know, we have a processing coach that's called the four C's. And that there's a cycle that when you come up with a new idea, the first thing you have to do is commit to it. That's the first C which is commitment, and the second C is courage. And courage is where you decide to go forward lacking confidence. Mm -hmm. 
you don't have the confidence yet because the capability is only in your mind. The capability isn't real in the world. Okay. And my sense is the combination of commitment and courage that actually creates the capability. They're like the differential in electricity. You have to have a plus and a minus. You know, you have to have a negative charge and a positive charge to create the spark. The spark is the capability. And once you do it, you get a fourth C. So the first three are commitment, courage, capability, and the fourth one is confidence. And the confidence comes from having taken the capability from an idea to reality. Okay, you have witnesses. Mm -hmm. You have witnesses, you pull off the capability. But not only that, you can feel the skill. Okay, and once you get the skill, then it's rinse, relather, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, do it, and it's endless cycles. So <laughs> what got you to where you are today is probably, let's say, I'll just pick a number out of the error here. You've done this a hundred times. You've done the four C's a hundred times before meeting Lloyd Price saying, oh, this story is a play, and you've worked up a lot of other 4C experiences that I think this is the next big thing that I can commit to. And I know it's going to require a lot of courage to do it until we actually create the capability to do it. But that's five years in the past now. I mean, it's the measurement of five, six years since you started the first time. So. I just like to do that as a framework. Is there something structurally different between now, right at the point where something that you've created from scratch is now going to be on the big stage from the standpoint of theater, West End of London, and the eventual Broadway? I'm just wondering if there's that much different And anything that you've created, the process of creating all the other things you've created over the last 70 years, that's too much different between the one you're doing now and the one you did to kick it off in the basement of your house in Akron, Ohio. I mean, in many ways, I think it's marshalling all the same factors within me. Yeah. And I'm a firm believer in... Everything you do informs everything else you do if you're paying attention. Yeah, that's a distinction of outlook that either happens or it doesn't happen in a person's life. And I'd like to introduce the concept of narrative here, Mm -hmm. that you have a choice in life between your narrative or other people's narrative for you. Right. Yeah, define yourself or be defined by others. Yeah. There's a Yogi Berra wisdom here. When you come to the fork in the road, take take it. it. (laughs) (laughs) Take it. But in fact, there's a big difference which fork you take. (laughs) Because I see great consistency about our conversations going back since I first met you, associated with Joe Polish somewhere along the line. And I see a great consistency in everything you're doing, whether it's the new seasons fashions for Ralph Lauren or for any of the other clients you've had where you've created a new theatrical production 
whatever it was. And it goes back to your fashion days where you were creating the the actual product that then was going to be theatrically introduced into the world in the form of fashion and documentary films that you've done and everything. But I see a great simplicity and a great consistency to the simplicity for your last 70 years. I agree with you. It was just your life. Everything you do relates to everything else you're doing. Yeah. All your experience matters. Yes. And I think that's true for everybody. But it's not. No, it's not. No, it's not. Well, I think it's true for everybody, but maybe they don't see the connection. Yeah. So seeing the connection is (laughs) part of the capability. Yeah, because that diminishes the fear. Yeah. When you realize, oh, this isn't all that different from what I was called on to do when I made a film Mm -hmm. or when I designed a line of clothing, you know, but I think, yeah, a lot of people are so siloed in their thinking that they don't see the connections. Well, because it's by the challenge. No, it's not their narrative. It's somebody else's narrative for them. Right. Well, that's right. That leads us to an interesting place because, you know, I love the four C's and you know, you and I very much share the same beliefs about the relationship between commitment, courage, confidence, and capability. But there's another thing that I think affects a lot of people that fits into here, and that is imposter syndrome. Yeah. That they don't have the confidence, and when they're lacking that, they somehow feel like they're inauthentic or fake. They feel like yeah. they're an imposter. And I think it has to do with the collision or the contradiction in their mind between courage and confidence. And so people say to me, well, what's the difference between courage and confidence? I say, well, confidence feels good. Right. Right. Courage doesn't feel good. That's why it's admired in other people, but you yourself don't want to experience it. Well, and I think that, you know, it's interesting because Oftentimes, the criticism that one gets or the caution one gets from somebody else has much more to do with their fear than you as the subject of who they're talking about. Yeah, because if I might put in what the fear is, they don't want to be seen as abnormal. Mm -hmm. Right, which that opens up another area here because being seen as abnormal first you have to have a sense of well what is normal yeah because in order to be abnormal you're somehow violating those norms and those norms for most people are to be fairly regimented in terms of what they do their thought and the things that they will put their time into that it diminishes the need or eliminates the need for courage yeah You know, it's the old, you won't get fired for buying an IBM. As long as you make the safe decision, they can't blame you for it. Although I think that's a lot less true now than it used to be. But the idea of being an imposter rattles an awful lot of people. And what I have said in discussions with, actually from very well-established artists who felt like they were imposters, my feeling is everybody's an imposter until you actually succeed in doing what you're doing. But I don't call it an imposter. It means you're trying to manifest those ideas 
that are important to you. But, you know, Steve Jobs wasn't Steve Jobs until he became Steve Jobs through what he did. But he was never an imposter. You know, I can now legitimately call myself a playwright because my play has been produced. But I never felt like I was an imposter before doing that. I felt like this is what I'm doing. Yeah. You know, going back to the topic of this podcast, how do you discover your passion? I'll say, well, first of all, not outside of yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And go a little bit deeper into that. As your willingness to go through the courage that your commitment requires, that creates reality. Mm-hmm. There's not an express elevator <laughs> to being a non-imposter. But the big thing here that I'm sensing is that it was always your judgment about yourself that mattered. It wasn't other people's judgment. I mean, we need other people's judgment because we need their money. <laughs> we need their applause. But that's just part of the validation that what was real inside of you is also real outside of you in terms that other people are picking up on it. Mm-hmm. I think that's true. True to a point, because I think that there are, if you're fortunate enough, and I am fortunate enough, to have people whose opinions I value and trust, I think a big problem is certainty. <laughs> and I think you have to leave open that door for that uncertainty. And that's back, of course, to courage, yep. where in a collaborative situation, where Sheldon, the director, and I might be talking about something, if he brings up an issue, I respect him. I may not end up agreeing with him, but I will give it a hearing. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't threaten me, and we will have informed, animated, and respectful discussion about that particular execution of an idea. Yeah. But, you know, that's... Interesting, because I think, you know, as the saying goes, no man is an island. But I do have to be convinced that what you're suggesting is right. Being convinced may be the history we have together, mm -hmm. that I am always open to what that person has to say. Yeah, but let me ask you a question about people whose opinion you respect. Does that not have to do with the fact that that person themselves is going through the same process that you're going through. They're committing, and they're exhibiting courage. Yes, that's right. People who aren't courageous, I don't take their opinion seriously. Mm -hmm. How do you know they're not courageous? Because I don't see any evidence in their life that they ever took a risk on what they were committed to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A dear friend of mine who's in theater and has been a friend for over... 35 years or so, Stephen White, acting teacher at ACT, Stella Adler, NYU. And we were actually talking about this the other day, the capability, the courage, the confidence, and all of that sort of thing. And I respect his insights because over and over again throughout his life, he's been there. Yeah. So I know he gets it. He knows I get it. Which brings up the other really important thing is trust in the people that you listen to. Mm -hmm. 
And one of the things he said to me, and this is really cool because so far he's been prescient and I hope it continues to be the case. He was at the 29 hour. And as we got that spontaneous standing ovation at the end of the reading, which was a very informal reading, he turned to me and said, you know, you've got a hit here. Mm -hmm. And Steve is as blunt as a ball peen hammer. So, you know, he said that to me and then we talked a bit afterwards and he said, look, you're going to get a lot of people's opinions. The more your play is out there, the more is exposed, the more opinions you're going to hear. Listen to your director. He's really good. And you also need to learn who to ignore. Mm-hmm. And so you can nod your head and be polite if they're going to write a check and say, oh, that's an interesting idea if they're going to write a check. <laughs> but otherwise... You'll drive yourself crazy with other people's opinions. So you really need to vet those that you will open that space to. Yeah. You know, and that comes from trust. Yeah. You know, I'll just throw in another dimension here. I think there's a lack of discernment on the part of people who want to follow a creative career Okay, I'm just going to use the title of your book here, Creative Careers. You don't realize that the world is 50% of your creative team. (laughs) In other words, I always start a new idea because my product, if you will, in the coaching world is thinking tools. I come up with thinking tools like the four C's is a thinking tool. And I said, if you look at everything in your life, where you had an idea and you stayed with it and you went through good feedback, bad feedback, and you kept fashioning the product until the point where someone like your friend could say, you got a hit on your hands here. If you're not willing to commit yourself to that process of getting both negative and positive feedback, and then learning to discern which of the feedback is really valuable to move the project forward, you can't follow this career. Well, you're right. And I think in most cases, when I've gotten criticism, when it resonates, I know I need to listen to it because it may be often echoing a doubt that I have anyhow. Mm -hmm. And that amplifies that doubt. Yeah, I do need to pay attention. I knew that, (laughs) you know, like I would say to my editor in my film company, He would say to me, you know, I don't know if this works or not. And I said, don't show it to me. That's what he mean. And I said, I want you to show it to me when you think it works. And I'll respond to that. Now, if you've hit an obstacle that I can help you with, happy to do it. But I want you to present what you feel is ready to be seen. And then we'll talk about it. Mm -hmm. And I know that I really didn't like it when a client would want to be included too early in the process when it wasn't ready for approvals or criticisms yet. We're just getting it out. And so I don't want to inhibit that process because now I've got a second guess because I won't do that. You know, their likes and dislikes. I had a friend, a colleague that I worked with. It's really interesting. She came from network television. She went to work for a very large global designer who was a client of mine. And I was presenting what was a very important edit. And so what do you think? And she said, well, I don't know if so-and-so will like it. And so I didn't ask you that. I said, what do you think? 
Yeah. Well, you know, I know that he doesn't like edits when they're fast. This is kind of fast editing. And I said, I didn't ask you that. I said, what do you think? And she goes, I just, I don't think he's going to like it. And I said, I've asked you now three times. Do you even know what you think? Or have you become so into the quicksand of this corporate mindset that you're afraid to have your own opinion? Mm. And you're just mirroring the criticisms you think you might get. And she was silent. And I said, you know, when we started work together four years ago, you were fabulous. You had really good insights, really good opinions. And slowly over time, you've become a corp thinker. <laughs> and all of your thoughts are based on what you think will fly or not within the business. You know that totally cripples creativity, that totally cripples innovation. It's just about getting approvals from others so you can keep moving forward. Mm. When did you lose the ability to think on your own? Because that's a really dangerous place to be. Mm. And tears started running down her face. And she said, I never experienced this before. Nobody's ever challenged me on this before. Anyhow, she left the company within a month. Mm -hmm. Because she realized she had lost herself. That the pinballing around for corporate approvals and all that kind of thing, which is why I never, I had opportunities to become parts of well-established companies. Mm -hmm. And that just had zero interest to me because I've seen so many people who become just lost. They don't know what they think anymore. They don't know what their opinions are anymore. It's like in a great movie, the uh, Preston Surges movie called Fourth of July, where he says to one of the advertising people in his company, when I want your opinion, I'll tell it to you. <laughs> and it's interesting to me and sad how people are afraid of new ideas and afraid of the risk of putting that forward because that opens them up to blame or criticism. The big thing there is your relationship with failure. And that is that I don't like failing, but I know that if I don't have the experience of failure, I don't really know what success is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. And I also think that when something is out there, the interesting thing is about, you know, when you're in a creative field and depending on your position, in my case, being the writer, my work is going to succeed or fail on a large stage. <laughs> no pun intended. The public will know what the critics thought of what I did. Yeah. I know some very well-established actors that truly never read their reviews. Because their feeling is, I can't just take in the good ones. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I've got to take in the bad. And if I'm going to believe the good, I got to believe the bad. And I don't want any of that interfering with my process or what I'm doing. Now, it doesn't mean she won't listen to the director or anything like that. But what that means is that the criticisms that she gets in the press and so on or online, she doesn't want to listen to it. And I understand that and respect that because it's hard not to want to see what's said. But I think it's also important to keep your true north going and that your compass is ultimately your own. Yeah. But it's all guessing and betting. 
you know, I mean, I guess that I've got a really good idea here. First of all, I'm willing to bet my reputation in other people's eyes to keep the idea going here, mm-hmm. you know? And look, you don't have theater unless you have an audience. You don't have theater. I'm using theater as a generic term for the whole subject that we're talking about here. And I think that's why theater is so fascinating to people, that it's laden with risk. That's right. (laughs) Every performance is a risk. Yeah. Tonight's play is not last night's play. You've got a different audience. Uh, And uh, is everybody up to it? Am I up to it again to fully commit? I mean, do you get a point where you don't have to do this anymore? And I said, yeah, but that's the end of it when you don't want to do it anymore. And I said, you know, let's be risking on the last day. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's, you know, risk is kind of the subset of courage or parallel to courage, right? because you're aware of the risk because if you're not you're just a fool yeah you better be aware of you know what's going on yeah otherwise i mean courage means that you're willing to consciously take on the risk right i mean yeah but you don't dive head first thinking it's the deep end and it's only two feet (laughs) you know (laughs) So you want to have some kind of assessment of what that risk is. I would say that's part of the growing capability. That's right, to be able to assess that. Your nose for who belonged in the backstage of your play and who belonged in the front stage of your play and everything else. And I remember the conversations we had during the Chicago run that you were so amazed at the sheer courage of the actors. Mm Mm-hmm. That's right. Because and even when you told them that the run was going to be abbreviated, they did their best work in the final week. That's right. I mean, one could say, well, that's part of being a professional, which it is. But it's hard unless you have that courage and that capability to overcome the disappointment or whatever and not put that on the stage. Yeah. Which made that very bittersweet for me mm-hmm. because, you know, seeing the audience's reaction and all of that. And I know we made the right business decision. Yeah, me. because there was a bigger play that had to be guaranteed. That's right. That's right. We got to hold on to our cash if we're going to jump to the next level. That's right. Yeah. I mean, we've succeeded here. We've got reviews like we've never gotten before. Okay. We've got footage that is dynamite footage that we can take to the next level because you're always packaging where you are to get ready for the next jump. That's right. That's right. And again, the more you experience, as you were saying, the more that not only builds your confidence because you're developing that capability, it allows you to take greater risks and exhibit that courage. Again, not being foolish, but doing that. Well, You've done your requisite number of foolishness. (laughs) 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 I've done my foolish. (laughs) Yeah, but I don't see it as negative. I mean, I don't see it as destructive. I see it as constructive. I mean, I've wasted money, wasted time, wasted talent. I've done that, but it's all part of the 
game. That's right. That's right. You know, so to circle it back to the idea of following your passion and recognizing your passion, I think that a part of that is what you talked about. The money was at best secondary. Your desire to do it was primary. And it's almost, I think, has to become in a certain level an obsession. You know, because when you fully commit to what is inherently a risky proposition and you have some awareness of the risk involved and a strong belief in your ability to execute on the promise that you're putting out there, you know, the passion to be firing on all cylinders, as they say. And I think passion to me, now that I'm thinking about it, is being fully engaged in what you're doing. Mm-hmm. I think that's passion. Yeah. yeah. Not half committed. <laughs> right. Save yourself the bother. Do not be half committed. Right. <laughs> you know, it's Yoda <laughs> says, try, do not try. Do or do not do. (laughs) And I think that the great unhappiness of people, when I see people who have stopped, like the person that you told the story about, they realize that they can't give their full commitment anymore. Mm -hmm. Or they haven't really truly given their full commitment before. Mm -hmm. And I think to live half a life is... Being an imposter. (laughs) Well, and I also think that as humans, we have a remarkable ability to rationalize. And I consider her and she considered me a friend. And that's why I spoke to her so bluntly, because I was concerned about her as an individual. What happened to you? Do you realize what's happened to you? And that's why she left. And actually, she left and then started her own business. (laughs) You know, because we can all rationalize. Well, look, you know, I'm being paid to do this and this is what they want. And so my first job is to satisfy them and blah, blah, blah. But if it's also eating you up inside, and although that's your public face, you require another couple extra drinks after work (laughs) because the pain of what you're doing has taken over or the hollowness because you're just not engaged. And to me, those are the worst people to work with. You know where I see this most is in the professions, because, you know, I'm coaching 50 years. Next year, August, it'll be 50 years since I've been coaching entrepreneurs. The ones who I see who are most tortured by their entrepreneurial career are the professions. Okay, so doctors, dentists, lawyers, accountants, engineers, architects, And that is where they have a very prescribed period of life where you have to learn the craft, the way the craft is set out, okay? But these professions are guaranteed almost to give you a good income if you do it right, okay? I would say that's less so today than it was. Like when we were growing up in Ohio, I mean, Oh, my son's becoming a doctor. Well, that future is guaranteed. It's a very interesting, it's an immigrant thing. If you watch what immigrants do when they come, I'll use the United States, they come from someplace else to the United States. And immigrants say, my son's going to become a lawyer. My daughter's going to become a doctor and everything else. 
because they know that those have credibility, they have respect. There's a certain path that you go through. It's just a lot of hard work, put in the hours, you know, get the degrees stage by stage by stage, and you're guaranteed a sure lifetime. So I've had a lot of people, I always say to the professionals, you got to make a decision right here in the very first workshop in coach. Are you a lawyer or are you an entrepreneur who has a specialty in law? Are you an engineer or are you an entrepreneur who has a specialty in engineering? Because if you say the former, if you say I'm a lawyer, I'm an engineer, I'm an accountant, you're just a highly paid factory worker. And with <laughs> with artificial intelligence coming on the scene, not so well paid anymore because there are programs now that can probably do in a matter of an hour what it takes you three weeks to do and uh, at a lot less cost. And I think that we're going through a period right now where those supposedly guaranteed secure future activities are no longer guaranteed and secure. Oh, well, I think you're right. I mean, you know, careers are not what they used to be. <laughs> you know? Remember the old days when a career was really a career? That's right. That's right. And just the future is not what it used to be. No. The, <laughs> everybody's in theater now. <laughs> Maybe yeah. that's why the imposter syndrome has come up. I've seen more use of that word over the last 10 years than I ever saw in the first 70 years of my life, the word imposter. So what's causing that phenomenon? You can't just read it out of the manual. Right, right. Well, I also think there's something else. This is a topic for another time, but I think there is such a thing as toxic productivity <laughs> and that what social media has fostered is people leaning against a Lamborghini that isn't theirs. Having a picture taken and sending it out on social media. And, yeah, and saying that they started making a million a month in real estate with no investment. So I think there are new platforms, just like, you know, the snake oil salesman that showed up in the pioneer town, you know, with the miracle cure. It's just we've gotten more sophisticated in terms of how to deliver the message into a larger crowd. Yeah. But it's the same human bullshit. You know? Well, it was interesting because I followed the recent court case with the FTX, Sam Bankman Freed, yeah. and the lead prosecutor from New York, because it was a New York case, they asked him the question, well, how did you sort off this whole cryptocurrency thing? I mean, how did you get to the bottom? He said, it didn't have anything to do with cryptocurrency. It had to do with fraud. And he <laughs> said, this is as old as human history is right. fraud. And right. he said, just fraud. I mean, it was it was the shortest big fraud case deliberation on the part of the jury in history. It was four hours. I mean, Bernie Madoff took seven days. <laughs> this was four hours. <laughs> because what was the problem here? The problem was fraud. <laughs> you know, and somewhere in Mesopotamia 10,000 years ago. <laughs> That's right. Somebody had just followed 
how do you be a really exciting fraud? <laughs> well, it, <laughs> and a fraud is an imposter. That's the whole basis. That's of right. You're being an imposter. There was a great article written in the New York magazine. The writer spent time with Sam's parents. And they said, oh, we raised him right from the childhood to be an adult because he was so smart. If Sam was just so smart. This is about last week. I think it was last week in the New York magazine. And she said to the mother, she says, is there any time over this period where you went to him and you said, Sam, is there anything to these accusations? And she says, no, because I knew right from the beginning the way that we raised Sam is that he would never be unethical. He would never do anything dishonest. He would never lie. And I said, hmm, hmm, note to self, <laughs> note to self. Maybe you should have started asking him that when he was about six. <laughs> yeah, yes. The fact that your kid has Hitler posters on the wall and collects Nazi memorabilia might be a red flag for your kid. <laughs> you know? No, he's a good boy. He's a good boy. <laughs> he's, a, he's a good boy. But, but it was really interesting because his passion was fraud. <laughs> and he pursued it at a very high level. Now he got this multiplier called cryptocurrency, but it could have been... Absolutely. Could have been anything else, but right at the center of this, what we have is an old-time human being. <laughs> well, that's why I always loved the category of rock called fool's gold, <laughs> because it takes a fool. Yeah, that it's very interesting. The word sincere, <laughs> it's a Latin word. The word is sinceri. I was just thinking of Sam Goldwyn. Sam Goldwyn said, you know, in Hollywood, the most sincere quality you have to have is sincerity. He says, once you can fake that, you can get away with anything. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but sincerity comes from silver. The silver merchants, they would make statues, you know, statues of the gods or statues of the emperors. And what they discovered, some clever ones, that if you had the minimum of silver on the outside and you took wax and you created an inner part of the statue and you packed it with wax and you weighed a real silver statue against that, it would be exactly the same. The weight would be the same. So the word for wax in Latin is cherry and sin is without so it's without wax, and so they would hold up their statues. They said, Jerry, St. Jerry, as they indicate that there was no wax. Well, <laughs> Sam Bankman Freed was just all wax. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was silver plated wax. <laughs> yeah, I love that because it's, of course, the opposite of that is that it's pure through and through silver. Yeah. But you got to penetrate so, the yeah, surface. But every, everybody's having these exotic dreams about, yeah, but cryptocurrency changes everything. You know, I mean, we're into a new realm of human experience. Yes, but right at the foundation is fraud. <laughs> <laughs> right. I remember in the, I guess it was maybe the early or mid-70s, what was going to take over human discourse was Esperanto. Remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
no more need for all these weird idiosyncratic languages, you know. Yes. Yeah. No, I had a professor at the college I went to, and he was a big Esperanto guy. He said, can I give you a tip on the future? Learn Esperanto. I remember I was talking to him, and I said, learn Esperanto. And he says, in 50 years, this is going to be the universal language, Esperanto. And I said, it's kind of boring. He said, oh, no, 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 that, you're just attaching, you, you just have your things about your own language here, but this is going to be the pure human language. This is not an accidental language, this is a created language. And I said, huh, go for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I think there's groups to still get together and they speak Esperanto to each other, but... I'm sure there are. I'm yeah. sure there are. The hotels actually don't want their conventions. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and there are groups that get together and discuss how the Earth is flat. Yep. And how the moon landing actually was set up in the desert somewhere in the United States. Yeah. I'm a great uh, believer in Occam's razor. Do you know Occam's razor? Yes. Yeah. Occam's razor says whatever explanation is the simplest is probably the truest. <laughs> yeah. But speaking of someone uh, on the passion subject was this man, Palmer Lucky, who I met for the first time. I didn't really meet him, but he, I was in an audience. He's about 30 years old, and he created the Oculus. Mm -hmm. When he was 17 years old, he created that. It's the first and most popular interface for going into virtual reality. When you put it on, you can be in a three-dimensional world. And when he was 22, 23, Mark Zuckerberg purchased it for $2 billion. So he got his $2 billion, but he had a falling out because of his political inclinations and he was fired because when he sold out he became an employee he was no longer the entrepreneur he was now a worker bee and he was fired and now he's at 30 years old he's doing an enormous amount of work for the defense department in sensing equipment and hmm. sensing systems and everything else and somebody in the audience sir peter diamandis asked him the question well what's your passion you're following your passion. And he says, I don't follow my passion. I follow my talent. And he says, wherever my talent seems to be really useful somewhere and people really want me to use my talent to create something new, he says, I discovered it just makes me a lot happier than following my passion. Really funny. I mean, he's very funny and he's very articulate. So Peter said, well, you know, with your experience, you know, with Facebook and with Mark Zuckerberg and everything on that experience. And, you, you know, you're discovering new things you want to do in the world. What motivates you now at 30? You know, it's a good question. You know, what motivates you? I mean, you've got a long life. You know, what motivates you at 30? <laughs> and he said, you know something? Since I had that experience, I've never appreciated the almost unending motivational power of just revenge, just pure revenge. <laughs> you know? And the whole audience just went crazy. That, oh, yeah, revenge, you know. <laughs> that goes way back in history, too. That's, yes. uh, <laughs> I mean, he said it with a sense of humor, but not really. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, coming full circle here with our question about the passion. 
but I just did a podcast with Mike Koenigs and I dropped a line. We were at a conference together and I said, you know, if you know who you are, you don't need someone else to tell you. Mike said, oh my God. And I said, you make a decision in life about who you are, you know? And I think there's an ownership at a very early age of just exactly who you are, that you don't need other people's opinions. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the story that you recounted, Jeff, about that, she didn't know who she was. That's right. And you go through all the people whose opinion that you trust, you know, whether they give you negative feedback or positive feedback, the one thing you go on is that person knows who they are. Right. That's right. So maybe the answer to how do you discover your passion is that you take ownership of who you are. Yeah, and the courage of that conviction and the courage of that commitment. Yeah. (laughs) And the courage of that capability and the courage of of the confidence that comes with that. So, yeah, and I think that social media hasn't done the world any good from that perspective. (laughs) That's right. That's right. You know, and and that's what I look at it as, is that's the snake oil salesman that rides into town. You know, it was funny when my kids were, this was their senior year of high school, and there was a party for the parents and the kids. So I was spending my time talking to the kids because, you know, I like my son and daughter's friends. I wanted to hear, you know, so now they're leaving high school. What are their dreams? What do they want to do? What are they after and all that? So one of the fathers came down and he said, you know, you've been here talking to all the, all the kids. Why don't you come over and talk to us? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, you already got the script for your life. And these kids are just, you know, in the process of writing it. I find it a lot more interesting. So I like hearing what their dreams and hopes and fears are. That's interesting to me. He goes, you know, you're an interesting guy, Jeff, but I have to say that, and I'm thinking, oh, what's coming after that? And he said, but I have to say that you put your personality right out there. And if you just gave people a bit more time to get to know you, <laughs> you know, they might discover that you're really an interesting person, but I think some people are just put off because you just put it out there. And I think some people are put off by that. Yep. And I said, you know, I do that out of respect for their time. And he goes, what? And I said, I figure I might as well offend them now as opposed to waiting six, eight months, a year until we find out that we don't want to be around each other. And that way we don't waste all that time. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't believe in the slow reveal. (laughs) This is who I am. You like it. You don't like it. Yeah. Very interesting. I mean, I sent you a couple letters regarding the Israeli-Palestinian thing. And we came right out, I think it was written two days, the one to our staff. And we said, we're giving money to the United Jewish Appeal, and we'll match any grant that somebody was because Israel's going to be in need of money right now, the Jewish people. So we put it out to our entire team, and one of the people came up and said, you're taking a total stand on this, aren't you? And I said, 
Yeah, I said, I strive to not be neutral on anything. <laughs> and I said, people who are neutral after a while don't know who they are. You know, I says, you know, if it's on the one hand this and on the one hand this, after a while you don't have any hands. <laughs> and I said, you know, it's very important to know your friends from your enemies and say so. But we put it out to 9,000 clients and former clients, and we had four negative reviews. Hmm. A lot of people didn't get it because they didn't even read their email. But the big thing is that you lose nothing by showing up. Mm -hmm. But in order to benefit, you have to show up. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And since you have a choice of showing up of who you actually are or faking it, I just find over the long time, faking it doesn't get you anywhere. Yeah, and the thing is that you have to remember what lie you told that person. <laughs> so they can, <laughs> the, more, the more you As multiply. As Harry Truman said, always tell the truth. It's much more economical. You only have to remember one version. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, well, so what have we explored today? Is this just another Jeff and Dan jabbering or? <laughs> well, every episode is Jeff and Dan jabbering. Okay. <laughs> that's the medium. <laughs> that's correct. You know, that's the medium. But hopefully we have set out, I think, some important identifiers in terms of passion and what it takes. Your four C's of commitment, courage, capability, and confidence and how to tell something that's genuine from something that isn't. Mm -hmm. And of course, we throw in a bit of anything and everything, stir it all up. And hopefully, we've hit on some messages that are valuable to the people listening. And if nothing else, I had fun. <laughs> I had fun. I mean, this is an infinite onion. You keep peeling away layers of it. But I think the answer to everything related to how you move through your life starts with courage. I mean, it's the commitment first, and then you have the courage of your commitment. As long as that's always an active operating principle, I think it's a good life. I think it's a happy life. I think it's a productive life, hopefully a profitable life. But the alternative has nothing good to be said for it. Well, I agree. And I think one of the areas that's so important to, I think, both of us is the notion that you can't have passion without engagement. And that fully engaged life is a more passionate and I yep. believe, therefore, a more fulfilling life. Yep. I think that's a take. That's a take. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, this is really great. Thanks for joining us today on our show, Anything and Everything. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. For more about me and my work, visit acreativecareer.com and madoffproductions.com. To learn more about Dan and Strategic Coach, visit strategiccoach.com.